Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 28. After three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to join him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, boldness and without hindrance. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Anybody else want to leave? Why don't we just pray um, as the children are leaving? Let's pray. Father God, this morning, as we listen to this story of Paul's journey to Rome, would you remind us that we are your people, that we are your story being lived out on this earth? Would you remind us, bring it alive to us this morning by your Spirit? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, we are coming to the end of your series in the book of Acts. And we're going to spend a little time this morning looking at Paul's journey to Rome. It was an extremely important journey for Paul. And I think it's an important journey for us to understand. We know it mattered to Paul because Paul wrote a letter to the Roman church before he visited. So the letter to Romans, and you're going to be doing a series on um, Romans starting next week. Is that right, Corky? So you're plunging into the book of Romans. Good luck. I'm just saying, good luck. Um, But um, Paul wrote that letter to the Roman church before he had a chance to visit. And this is what he said in that letter. For God is my witness, Paul said, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without cease I mention you, that's the Roman church, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. This is a long-held desire that we're going to see fulfilled this morning. For I long to see you. So I wanted to think a little bit about Paul's longing, what that visit to Rome meant for Paul. Because you really have to kind of put yourself back in the first century to understand what it meant for him. And I want to suggest that it points to a fundamental question for us that we are drawn into by this narrative, and it's really quite simple. It's who is your Lord? Who do you serve? And I enjoy preparing this talk because I have just recently made my own little pilgrimage to Rome for the first time. That's me and my wife outside the Colosseum. What is it about selfie sticks? 
I mean, you cannot go anywhere without this kind of sort of forest of selfie sticks. It's just, I hated them. But anyway, we went to Rome. We went to see the Colosseum, the Trevi Fountain, the Spanish Steps, St. Peter's Basilica. The Colosseum, actually, I didn't realize that, but that was built by, probably by Jewish slaves. It was built by Jewish slaves after the Jewish revolt in AD 70. Rome crushed that revolt and then took a bunch of slaves that built the Colosseum. But one of the things that you can't help noticing as you wander around Rome is that everywhere you see these kind of, can we have that next image? You see these little sort of plaques on some of the later monuments that have been built in Rome. And I don't know if you can read that, but it says Clemens the 12th, and then it says Pont Max. Do you know what that means? No, nor did I. I didn't know what that meant, but it's everywhere. Pont Max, Pont Max, Clemens, you know, there's a, a name and a number, and then Pont Max. Now, come on, you can figure out who the Pont Max is. The Pope, exactly right. The Pont Max is the Pope, and it's short for Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus. Any Latin scholars here this morning? No? It means high priest. Okay. That makes sense for the Pope, doesn't it? The high priest, the number one guy. But actually, Pontifex Maximus was a Roman term first. And it was appropriated by the Caesars. Caesar was, before the Pope, Pontifex Maximus. So as you visit Rome, you immediately start to get the sense that there's a sort of tension between, if you will, the kind of spiritual claim to authority and the temporal or worldly claim to authority. Who ultimately is Lord? Caesar or Jesus? And it's a tension that Luke sets up right at the beginning of his gospel. You'll remember, or you should know by now, that Acts is part two, season two, of Luke's gospel. You get Luke and then you get Acts. They're both authored by Luke. It's really part one and part two. It's only separated by the gospel of John in the canon because John is kind of a standout gospel which kind of balances some of the other gospels. It really should go Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, or Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts because they belong together. And right at the beginning of Luke, you get this very clear setup for a story, and the story is this contrast between Jesus and Caesar. In the Christmas story, you remember these words. You will have heard them thousands of times. In those days, Caesar Augustus, Roman emperor, issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. A census, no problem for us, but if you were a Jew at the time, you would know that God does not like censuses. Any libertarians here in the room? David took a census. Do you remember that? And he got in trouble. A census was a way of exerting your authority over the ancient world. It was a way to make sure that you could get people to pay their taxes, impose the draft. It was a control mechanism. So right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he's setting up this contrast between Caesar and Jesus. And on the one hand, you have Caesar, who lives in the Palatine Hills, in a great palace. He has all power, all earthly power. Difficult for us to imagine just how powerful the Roman Empire was. You did not get to speak against the Roman Empire and keep your life. 
And against this controlling Caesar Augustus, who has imposed the Pax, the ironically named Roman peace, on the entire known world of the time, you get the contrast of Jesus Christ, born nowhere, with nothing, with nobody parents, who lives a life of vulnerability and love. And yet, of course, the story is, he's the true king, and Caesar isn't. And then when you get to now where we are uh, this morning, to the last part of Acts, it's as if Luke is, as we were, summing up that part of the story. Because right at the end of Acts, we have Paul, who is now visiting Rome. And it's as if Jesus in Paul is now going to Rome to confront Caesar. Have you seen Gladiator? Yeah? It's a little bit like that. Maybe that's a small exaggeration. No, Jesus isn't a gladiator. But there is this sense that, Paul, uh, that Luke rather, has set up this antithesis, Caesar, Jesus. And now in the last section of Acts we're looking at, he's bringing it all to a climax. And it's not a theoretical challenge to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that his kingdom will come in the face of the Roman Empire. This is what happens as Luke builds attention. In Acts 26, Paul has been arrested by the Jewish authorities. Why? He's been preaching Jesus, and the Jewish authorities don't like it. And Jesus gets passed from the Jewish authorities to the Roman authorities. Does that sound vaguely familiar? That's what happened to Jesus, right? And he now stands before King Agrippa, the last of the Herodian dynasty in Israel. And Agrippa is willing to free Paul, but as Paul later explains in the passage that we read this morning to the Jewish leaders when he gets to Rome, this is what happened, Paul says. My brothers, he's talking to a Jewish uh, audience here, although I have done nothing against our people, that's the Jews, or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. I hadn't done anything. I just preached Jesus. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Now, some of you will know that Paul was, because of where he was born in Tarsus, he's actually in Turkey. They're very proud there. It's really interesting. It's a Muslim nation, but they're deeply proud that their city is where the Apostle Paul was born. So he was born in Tarsus. Tarsus was a Roman colony. If you're born in a Roman colony, you get to be a Roman citizen. If you're a Roman citizen, you can, if you want, appeal to Caesar. It's a bit like appealing to the Supreme Court, and you will be sent to face, effectively, Caesar. And so Paul does that, and you can't help wondering if Paul has spotted his chance. He's been trying to get to Rome for a long time. He's in prison, and he's like, if I appeal to Caesar, they'll have to send me to Rome. I'll get there in the end. So he makes this appeal, uh, and, but just as it looks like things are going to start to work out for Paul as a prisoner, the journey turns, his journey to Rome turns into a sort of epic disaster movie. Everything seems to be against Paul actually making it to Rome. And if you read through Acts 27, you get this extraordinary story that Luke lays out in great detail of an epic journey where just about everything that could possibly go wrong does. 
First of all, the wind is blowing in the wrong direction, so you can't sail, set sail. The ships didn't sail against the wind in those days, so they lose loads of time. Then, against Paul's advice, the captain of the ship decides to set sail, even though the wind is getting worse. They get caught in a terrible storm. There's a hurricane that goes on for 14 days. They're finally shipwrecked. They land at last, but the ship's captain, fearing that his prisoners will run away when they land, decides to execute them all, but relents. But no sooner is Paul on land, he gets bitten by a snake. He then survives that and gets confused by the natives as a god and has to persuade them that he really isn't a god. And all the way through, you get this sense that Luke is building the tension that he has started right at the beginning of his gospel. Who's Lord? Jesus or Caesar? But Paul reassures us in Acts This is not his idea, this is God's will. Just when things are going really bad, he's on the ship, the sailors think they're going to die, Paul tells them this, he said, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And this angel said, Don't be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. This is something that has got to happen. There has to be this confrontation, if you will between the true king and the false king. It's coming. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted to all those who sail with you. In other words, you're going to be okay. You're going to okay, okay, and you're going to make it. So Luke is building this sense of the struggle and the power clash. And it is as if God himself is ultimately going to challenge Rome's power. No sooner is Paul in Rome then, of course, because he's Paul, and this is what he always does, he's preaching the gospel right under Caesar's nose. It's extraordinary to go to Rome, and you can walk through what was called the Roman Forum. And the Roman Forum, there are uh, uh, buildings, most of them have fallen down, but they still have the, the roads, the stones in the roads that were there in the first century. So you're walking on the stones where Paul probably walked, and you're looking up at the Palatine Hills where the emperor had his palace. And right there in the heart of Rome, Paul preaches the gospel. And this, and just want you to hear this, is what he preaches, because it's important that we understand this. This is what Paul preaches. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. That's Paul. He's in chains, but he's a kind of house prisoner, proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God in the face of of the Roman Empire. The kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord, the Kyrios, Jesus Christ, with all boldness and without hindrance. The kingdom of God and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And here's what I take from this. It's a reminder to me that this faith that we all share and we're trying to live out is a historic faith. That doesn't mean it's out of date. What it means is it is a faith that is lived out into real history. Real events, real people, real people doing real things in history. Christian claim is not a spiritual claim in the sense that there is a split-level world in which religion and faith belong upstairs, and society and politics 
belong downstairs. That is not a Christian worldview. The Christian claim is ultimately a claim of lordship and kingdom here on earth. Not yet fully realized, but one day to be completed. The reality of this lordship has already begun in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, his coming into the world, and is now being proclaimed through his body that is us, you and me. So Jesus is the true Pontifex Maximus, not Caesar. And I hope that as I'm saying that, some of you feel a little uncomfortable. Is anybody feeling a little uncomfortable? We should feel a little uncomfortable. Because of course, that raises some serious questions, as it did at the time of Paul. Matt, isn't that a little bit radical? I mean, are you saying that perhaps we don't need to obey the laws of this country? That we can say, no, 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 we have a difference Pontifex Maximus, a different Lord. Are you saying, Matt, that perhaps we don't even need to pay our taxes then because we're under a different authority? There's a tension that comes out of that statement. Jesus is Lord and his kingdom is coming. Do you remember the story of Jesus and the Pharisees when they come to question him about paying taxes? Anybody here like paying taxes? It was an issue then, it's an issue now. Do you remember that story? They're coming, the Pharisees are coming to test Jesus, and this is what they said to him. Tell us, Jesus, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The Jewish people were paying taxes to Caesar. But Jesus, aware of their malice, that's the Pharisees, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, oh, it's Caesar's. And they said to them, he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Right, you're familiar with that. And very often what's uh, taken from that is, ah, look, this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is kind of creating a split-level world. There are things that belong to God and things that belong to Caesar, right? And you get lots of kinds of theology and ideas about how you live as a Christian that come out of that one statement that we can live this kind of split world, level world. But we can't think of missing the point and the irony of what's going on here. Can we just have an image of that coin up? This is a denarius, a Roman denarius. It's an image of Augustus Caesar, and I don't know if you can see what it says, but on that right-hand side, it says Pontifex Maximus. And Caesar has a laurel wreath because he's victorious. Caesar Augustus has the title of Son of God. His father is divine. That was the Roman claim. And he's Pontifex Maximus. He's the top priest, that coin says. So when Jesus, and just hear the irony of this, holds up a coin with the image of Rome saying on it, this is the high priest, this is the son of God, this is a divine one, can you not see the irony that here stands Jesus who himself says, I am the son of God. I am the high priest. And the question that is being posed 
to the Pharisees is, who is your Lord? Christianity is not an invitation to anarchy, to tip the balance the other way. Paul will say, as you're going to discover in the book of Romans, that we should obey our earthly authorities and pay our taxes. Sorry for anybody who was getting excited. In Romans 13, Paul says this, that basically the earthly earthly authorities are God-given, and this is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Don't be an idiot. Don't. But you have to hold that in the big story that Luke is painting for us. Ultimately, ultimately, if you are a follower of Christ, there is only one Lord. There is only one Pontifex Maximus. And yes, that can put us sometimes, in some circumstances, in very difficult situations with very difficult and complex decisions to make. Have any of you heard of a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor in the 1930s. You know what was happening in the 1930s in Germany. You had the rise of Hitler, of uh, National Socialism, really dreadful things going on, really dreadful things going on. The German church at the time was predominantly Lutheran. I'm sorry if you have a Lutheran background. I'm not having a go at Lutherans. I'm really not. But the Lutheran church had sort of imbibed one of Luther's main ideas. They'd imbibed it, but rather simplistically without really understanding it. And what Luther had taught was there were sort of two kingdom theology. That as it were, there is a world of authority that belongs to God, but then there's a sort of delegated world of authority that belongs to the state and actually a third which belongs to the family. So the German Lutheran church had kind of imbibed imbibed a simplistic version of that, which is basically God is upstairs, we're downstairs. And at the same time, their church, the Lutheran church in Germany, had become deeply confused with national identity. Nationalism and faith had become profoundly confused and had preached a gospel of what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. As long as you've made some sort of profession of faith or you belong to a church, you're okay. Don't worry. You're fine. And what it meant was that the German church had no moral muscle to stand up to the Caesar of its era, Hitler. It did not know how to respond. It had not been, as it were, practicing the prophetic voice that the church should have into the culture. And so, by and large, the church acquiesced and went along with what was happening. And Bonhoeffer, who was anything but an anarchist, extremely, if you like, with a small c, conservative, had to, in the end, form a breakaway church he called the Confessing Church. Why the Confessing Church? Because they confessed Jesus, not Hitler, is Lord. Jesus and his way is Lord. And eventually, Bonhoeffer died 
as part of the German resistance. To say that Jesus is Lord is not an abstract idea. This is what Bonhoeffer said about that time. We gave away the word and sacrament wholesale. We baptized, confirmed, and absolved a whole nation unasked and without condition. We poured forth unending streams of grace. That sounds good, doesn't it? But he doesn't mean it in a positive sense. But the call to follow Jesus in the narrow way, which means Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord, was hardly ever heard. He's speaking about Germany. So this is what this tells me. This journey of Paul to Rome, where he preaches the lordship and kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, right in the face of the known power of the world, Caesar. As followers of Jesus, we must know we serve the higher Lord, ultimately, the higher way, love of God, love of neighbor. And that includes the outsider, the weak, the vulnerable, the widow, and the orphan, because Jesus, the true king, came in weakness and vulnerability. And he is Lord, not Caesar, and we follow his way. And here's the good news, and I'll finish with this. There are some advantages of having 2,000 years of perspective. Paul could not possibly have known what would happen to Rome. Rome must have seemed eternal, unshakable, could never be broken. I'm British. We used to rule the world. Not anymore. 400 years after Paul's visit to Rome, the Roman Empire was at an end. The eternal city now lies in ruins. You can go and visit it. Caesar's claim to be Pontifex Maximus looks slightly ridiculous. As we read in the psalm this morning, the Lord, it's the Lord who brings the nations to nothing. And a warrior is not saved by his great army. But contrast that with what has happened to the kingdom of the true king. Not perfectly realized, but us, the church. 2,000 years on, the church is growing all over the world. Very fast. So the question for us, who is Lord? Jesus or Caesar? Make your pick. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're going to pray that in just a few minutes. Would you help us to understand what that means? Would you help us to have the courage to follow the narrow way? Respecting the authorities that we've been put under, but ultimately making this confession. Jesus, you are Lord. Amen.